Welcome to Science of Business podcast by Valueships. My name is Radek and together with experts from various industries, we discuss new research pieces and their application in business life. If you're a manager or you want to be up to date with science that can be applied in your work, this podcast is made for you. Welcome to another episode of Science of Business podcast. Today we will be talking about work orientations. And specifically, we will try to know why does a person work and how can we um, develop our callings, our careers, our jobs. Today with me, um, I have two special guests. I have Kira Shabram, Assistant Professor of Management at Foster School of Business, University of Washington. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And Jordan Nielsen, Assistant Professor of Management at Croner School, School of Management, Purdue University. Thank you also for joining me. And um, we have quite a small amount of time for the big topic of career and calling. So I would jump straight to it and ask you, why does a person work? What is it behind this work orientations that you are um, researching? It's a very fundamental question. I usually, sometimes people ask, what's the kind of practical relevance of this question? And it's so fundamental that, that usually my response to that is, this is what makes people tick. This is why they're showing up to work, whether it's virtually now or, or, or in person. And so being able to understand that kind of fundamental question of why you're here and, and doing this, this, this paid work is really essential to, for understanding yourself from a career standpoint, but then also as a manager, you know, what's making these people tick and, and what's drive, what drives them. So that's kind of that, that's how I think about it for, from a practical lens, at least. And obviously, we get more precise about it from our academic lens as well. Yeah, I mean, to add to that, I think what we're interested in studying when we say work orientation isn't just why you're doing a particular job. There's quite a lot of research on that out there, but it's the broader as you're moving through your career, as you're transitioning jobs. What's kind of the driving factor? That's what we consider work orientation. Um, as Jordan matters, suggested, it really matters for your own experience. So there are studies out there mapping it onto your behavior at work, but even on really broad outcomes like life satisfaction or health. Um, I also often like to take a historical perspective. We are finding ourselves in an unusual time in that people come to work with different orientations. And that might seem quite obvious, but if you go back in history, people tended to have a pretty homogeneous reason for working. You know, whether that be survival, if we go all the way back to feudalism before, or whether it's this idea of a calling during the Protestant Reformation. So for managers right now, they're not just contending with what each individual employee is looking to get out of their work, but they're now dealing with the complexity of having multiple employees with different work orientations. In your paper, you're using those three um, types of work orientations, which are jobs, callings, and career. And I'm especially intrigued about this newest paper of yours, the dynamic of work orientations, um, and where you claim that those are not necessarily separate. I wonder if you could maybe elaborate more about how we choose those work orientations, how are they differing and how they are uh, interconnected according to your newest research? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, so, so usually at least over the last 20 years or so, 
we've come to think about work orientation in, in terms of three mutually exclusive uh, ways of, of viewing work. So one is as a job. So it's, I kind of have to do it in order to, to do other stuff, right? To support my family, to have fun, to go on vacation, that sort of a thing. So kind of a material necessity. And then we have a, a career orientation, which is this idea of, well, I work so that I can kind of advance in the hierarchy in my organization or in the profession. So I can kind of uh, become kind of a, a leader at, at work. And then the, the, the last one would be a calling orientation, which, which Kira's already, already spoken about or, or, or alluded to. And the calling orientation is all about the meaning of the work. So I work before, because I find it intrinsically meaningful. It's, it's interesting. I feel like I'm doing something that's good or valuable in society. And so we, we've come to think about those three. And, and, and usually we had thought about them as being separate or exclusive. So you have to, you have, to have one. You can't have multiple. And in this, in this recent article that, that we've written, we've kind of adjusted that understanding a little bit to say, well, calling and job seem to be exclusive. They're kind of two ends of the same, the same spectrum. If you're really high on calling, you're going to be low on job and vice versa. But this career orientation is actually separate. And so you can have both of these things going on at, at the same time. Yeah, I, I'm just going to repeat what Jordan said, but I agree with that, that to be clear, there's 20 plus years of research on those three work orientations. They were pretty well established. And so there's all these studies out there showing that when you see work as a calling, X happens. When you see work as a job, Y happens, right? We looked at all of that data and, and we agree with the outcomes, but basically what we took issue with is that you have to very carefully be slotted into one of those. And what we're suggesting based on all of that research already out there is that it's not actually three work orientations, that it's two dimensions. So think about where you fall at any given point in your career along a calling dimension from very low calling. So seeing work as a job is just a means to an end to a high calling. Work is important to you because it has more personal, social or moral significance. And so now there's a second dimension. That's the career dimension. How much do you care about advancement and becoming a leader? And so if you orient yourself somewhere along those two dimensions, you could be someone who is, you know, high calling, high career. You're not just someone who's willing to be a frontline warrior is the language we use in our paper where, you know, you're happy being in the trenches. You want to stay exactly in the job that you currently have. But instead, you are not just looking for meaningful work. You're also looking for advancement. You kind of want both of those things um, where someone else might be, you know, low calling, high career Think about recent trends like hustle culture, right, or um, grind mentality, if you want to use all those words. And so we're instead of saying there's these three types and they don't interact with each other, we're saying you fall somewhere along these two dimensions, somewhere in that square. And we think that that will impact your experience. And then the other thing that we're doing in the paper that we haven't spoken about yet is, but we're also trying to map as you asked in your first question, well, then how do people change over their lifetime? Are there predictable patterns where we can say younger people might be more likely to fall into this square or into that square? So that's really what we're trying to do in the paper. We're saying there's not three work orientations. There's two dimensions, mm -hmm. calling and career. And where do you fall at any given point in time? I will ask about those patterns in a second, but, but now I wonder, um, especially about this career dimension. So it seems like um this orientation reflects in some way um 
our aspirations, our uh, competitive spirit in a sense, like, you know, because it's kind of achievement oriented. Did you find any uh, correlations maybe between any of the, of those uh, traits for people who are more um, eager to uh, to achieve? So our paper is a review. And so we should be very clear that we didn't find anything. We're basically, we're organizing what's out there. But yes, there is research out there. So you very much want to think of that career orientation. As wanting more, I want to be a little bit careful because a calling orientation can also be more, right? You want to have more of an impact. You want to make the world a better place. But so it's that personal, I want to advance. And ambition certainly is correlated with career aspirations. Um, Jordan and I spend a lot of time trying to think about how do we label this career? Is it about advancement, drive, ambition? I think ultimately it's all of those things, right? Right. Jordan, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Kira and I have spent... Uh, you know, if we're honest, we spent a little bit more time studying calling and specifically than the other two, which is a reflection, I think, of, of most of the academic literature. And so part of what we're saying here is, hey, there's actually this career orientation that's that's independent and, and we should maybe focus on that as well. And, and, you know, we often study from the calling perspective, we'll go in and we'll study like nurses, for example, and lots of nurses find a lot of meaning in their work. It's very significant. And they could care less about becoming a nurse manager or this sort of career orientation stuff. And, um, and so that's a, that's a very common sort of sample or context for a calling study. But there's lots of other people out there who find their work meaningful, but also don't want to stay where they're at. They want to be moving around um, and, or, or up. Um, in, in some way. And so that distinction is one that we don't think has gotten much of any attention. And so something that we're kind of trying to shine the spotlight on a bit in our review so that we can study it better. Yeah, I think one of the things we're really trying to do is say that all work has dignity and all work has value. They just have different value. And and Jordan already said that as as academics, we've been really myopic. We've really studied people who have this strong sense of calling often in these social service settings. And, and I'm guilty of that too. I've studied animal shelter employees, people who work in residential care facilities, right? So we've, we've gotten this idea that to have a calling means that you're the specific person who's trying to help people in a frontline job. You are a nurse. And what we're trying to do with this paper is say, actually, if we look at all the evidence, there's people who have this high sense of calling, but want to be a leader in the organization. They want to be a CEO or they want to be a top financier, but that they're not just high in calling, they can also be high in career. Or we've wanted to show that there's a lot of value to people who don't see work as a calling. We're just trying to say that there's way more complexity out there and it's important to contend with all of those variations rather than what we've kind of done both as academics and practitioners the last 20 years. We've told people, to be happy, you must find your calling and then do that in a way. That's a simplified message, but career counselors have been really pushing that out there. And we're saying, yes, but there's different types of calling and there's different types of work orientation. And here's the entire spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think there is, I mean, even, and, and maybe you two share this experience to some extent as well. Maybe your experiences were different, but I mean, I remember when I was in college and trying to decide, okay, what direction am I going here? What do I want from the workplace or a career? A lot of anxiety. I felt like a lot of pressure to pick something, you know, that's going to be 
effortless because it's so interesting, right? Or aligns so perfectly with who I am. And, and that ideal is, is really attractive, um, but is also maybe impossible to fully reach. And, and so I, I do think in, among people of a certain generation, there is a kind of this pressure or anxiety associated with career choices that this, the, an overemphasis on calling might have, might have created. And so hopefully by maybe taking a step back and viewing different flavors or possibilities in your career, we're, we're kind of bringing down that pressure a little bit, or at least kind of, that, that's what I might hope yeah. from kind of a career counseling perspective. Well, and Radek, you cut us off because Jordan and I are now ping-ponging now, but I think anxiety is exactly the right word. It's not just anxiety to find your calling. He's totally right about that. But, you know, when I do interviews with some of these frontline people, again, with animal shelter employees, they almost have the sense of anxiety or dread sometimes about moving up in the organization. They want to do it, right? They're the people that are both high in calling and career want to make more of a difference. But in essence, then you're no longer in the trenches. You're giving that up. And there's these weird emotions that come with that. Um, anecdotally, that's certainly happened to me. You know, pre- prior to academia, I worked in nonprofits and I really tried to make a difference. And I still feel guilt that now I'm far more removed. I, I would like to say that I'm making more of a difference. I've evolved to not just be high in calling, but also high in career. But it comes with this anxiety of I'm no longer doing the most important frontline work. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm silent for a while because all you have said is opening so many um, new <laughs> paths in my brain into how to understand the calling and, and profession uh, and career and, and just... Um, Maybe to point to one thing that I just realized is that um, from from what you were saying, Kira, right now is that this career, if it's perceived as uh, separate from from calling, then maybe maybe this anxiety is higher when we when we accept that we can have both career and calling. And I think that's not common among volunteers, among nonprofits, that you can actually. Um, thrive in your life because in in many in many places also the the non-profits are underpaid in poland that's the case um but it doesn't have to be like that uh so so you can have like in a sense you can you can have both uh just if you perceive your work orientation um as a two-dimensional not as a as a singular that's you have said it much better than i could but yeah i think that is one of the key takeaways of our work um, if I if I might digress for one second, and then I'd love to hear your Jordan's thoughts on it, but we have a separate study where we only looked at people who had a calling. This is prior to this paper. And we went, again, with animal shelter employees, that's my background. Um, and we went into that study thinking that the people who can handle that work, because it's very difficult, it has a very high turnover rate, no resources, are the people who are highest in calling and nothing else, right? It's this consuming thing that from when they were a young kid, that's what they wanted to do. Um, and what we ended up finding was the exact opposite, that actually the people who are still in animal shelters 10 or 20 years later are what Jordan and I would now call people who are both high in career and in calling, that counterintuitively, by not just always sacrificing yourself, but instead by you know treating it a little bit more as a career, going home at the end of the day, and also by, by taking more opportunities to get into leadership, 
they not just lasted in the shelters, but they have much more of an impact now. So the people that were high in what we would call calling and career are now the CEOs or they're running national legislative efforts or one did the evacuations for Hurricane Katrina, right? So they're having this big impact precisely because they gave themselves permission to pursue a calling and a career. I'm not saying that if you're only high in calling, that means you're you're doomed and you're, you're going to have burnout and not be successful. But I think exactly as you put it, that giving yourself permission to view your work in both of these facets can be really helpful. Yeah. And I would say, you know, we can go the other direction. There, there are obviously a lot of places in the world where people don't have that many choices to, to pursue, you know, diff, different careers or occupations. And and their job is kind of forced to be more of a, a job orientation. And I think something important to recognize is, um, you know, that's something that's that's still meaningful. Um, it's meaningful, right, for reasons other than the work itself. It's meaningful because it helps them provide for their family. Or it's meaningful because it helps them pursue, you know, what they want to outside of, of the workplace. Um and so I, I think it's important to recognize that, a, that a, this sort of job orientation idea or, or people who have a kind of low calling, um, that's still a place that is, for a lot of people, is, is fine, right? It's, um, and, and, and they're okay with that. Even in developed economies where you do have more choices, that this, there's plenty of people who forget about work completely at the end of the day and, you know, and, and they couldn't care less to think about until they show up the, the next work day. And, you know, that's the research would say that if you, you think your work is, is more of a calling, you're probably going to be more satisfied. But Kira and I also identified instances where, you know, there, there are some factors which, which might kind of substitute for that calling effect, even if you have a job orientation. Yeah, so don't keep me hang, hanging. Tell me what's what are those things that can keep you satisfied even if you don't perceive your job as a calling? So Jordan wrote this section in our paper, but it always sticks in my mind as kind of one of the key takeaway quotes. But it's, we used to assume that if you don't have a calling, then you don't have meaningfulness. And all it really means is you don't have meaningfulness from your work. And so everything Jordan already pointed out, you can have very important meaningfulness from raising your family or your church or your hobbies. And the job allows you to do that. Um, the other thing is by treating work as a job, you bring down your expectations. There's a lot of research out there that classifies a calling as this double-edged sword, as a blessing and a curse, that when work is that meaningful to you, you become compul more compulsive about doing it. You are more inclined to engage in conflict with coworkers because you think there's a morally right way to do it. You kind of take all that pressure off when work is a job, right? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I think there are, you know, if, if you do have a job orientation and you're comparing yourself, let's say to a coworker who has a, a calling orientation. So you're doing the same work, but you have different orientations you could end up having the same job satisfaction, for example, as long as there's like st strong social support in your organization. So um, your, your boss is really supportive. Your coworkers are really supportive. There are other things that contribute to satisfaction outside of, of work orientation. And, and so I, I think that's pretty important because, you know, I, on average, calling is going to make you more satisfied with your work. But that's not, not, it's not a, such a simple story. And when we look at kind of on the, the individual basis. Wow, it's just, I have another aha moment in here. So 
in a sense, I see job calling and a career um, similar in terms of how to work with them, like personality traits, that everyone has to accept that people have it differently and that's fine for them, as long as it's fine for them, of course. But then I mean that, for instance, myself, I'm very calling driven, so I needed my purpose. I need to always check if I'm doing something that is bringing me um, towards my my mission <laughs> whatsoever. But then it's not the only way, in a sense. That's what I'm hearing from you. And and it's, it's very promising and... Uh, beautiful in yeah. a sense yeah and i don't think you know i think part of part of what we're trying to say is let's think about this maybe in more shades of gray than than black and white so on average calling is a good thing like i i would say i'm on the higher end of calling and, and i'm more satisfied because of it um but that doesn't mean that if you feel like you're on the low end that that, that you're just doomed to to be dissatisfied right so there's I, I just think there's there's some exceptions here. There are some broad patterns out there in terms of work orientation, um, but you know we should appreciate the grays maybe a little bit more than we have in, in in the past. Yeah, I mean, you asked about personality, so we can give you an analogy if you would like. You know, we tend to study the personality as five dimensions. One of them, conscientiousness is generally seen as a good thing. It tends to predict about 7% of behaviors at work, right? And so I, I would say, if we were to make an analogy, think of calling as a conscientiousness. On average, it's a good thing. It can make you more satisfied. It can make you a better employee. You're certainly more willing to go above and beyond. But A, it's not a black or white, I either have a calling or I don't on off switch. It's much more of a nuanced, where do you fall on that? And then B, you have to think about all the contingencies. You take someone with this high sense of calling and you put them in an organization that fundamentally has different values or that doesn't have the resources to support that calling. And it can get really problematic. We we have a colleague, Shasa Dabro at the London School of Economics, who's done extensive work on callings with musicians. And she basically shows that it's really hard to get a job as a professional musician. And even when you do, there's this constant struggle for keeping your position for money and all that. And so a lot of the benefits of calling can either play out very well in that field if you're one of the few lucky ones, or all of those findings can flip and people can, what she calls, she calls it a siren song. People just become really stressed out. So, so I agree with Jordan and with you that Work orientation, like personality, is something that's fairly stable over the lifetime. It does change, and that we can predict some general outcomes on average, but it really matters that you think about the fit. I wanted to now um, come back to something that you mentioned earlier on, that you also were trying to find out some patterns throughout lifetime about how we change our work orientations. I wonder if you could share some of those insights from uh, this part of your research. Yeah. And so that like Kira, this is a good segue. Kira was just describing how work orientation is fairly stable, like personality, but we do have some evidence that it changes. And just like we have evidence of the, the personality changes over kind of longer periods of time. And so this is something that's, that's crucial. So if, if you're in a certain spot and, and, 
um, you know, some big event happens to you. A, a lot of people, for example, around the time of the September 11th attacks, particularly here in the United States, this was a huge kind of life-changing event for, for a lot of people. And it honestly changed the way that they viewed their lives and the role of different parts of their lives. And so there's actually some, some really interesting research showing that the people dropped jobs that they thought didn't have as much meaning in order to, to pursue it. So there was this maybe shift towards calling among certain people because of that event. So there are these kind of big events that, that can bring about those changes, and, and maybe that's more salient. But you can think about those things on a more individual basis, too. Are there events or, or certain sorts of kind of shocks that can happen to you as an individual that will change the way you think about your relationship with work? Yeah, I'll bring it back. Let's stick with the personality analogy again, because personality has been studied a lot longer. We used to wonder, we know that personality is fairly change, stable, but changes over a lifetime. We used to wonder, does it just change as we age? And the research is fairly clear on this now. No, that's not the case. It changes with life events, exactly what Jordan pointed out. And so that if you're someone who has fewer of these big life events, you never get married, you never have kids, your personality is probably a little bit more stable. We, we argue that the same is true for work orientation. So work orientation changes over a lifetime. There are certain points in life where we think it is more prone to change. One is right as you're graduating university and entering the workforce. Another one seems to be in middle age, so late 30s to late 40s. And then a third point may be at retirement. Um, and again, it's not just a function of aging. It's a function of the serendipitous experience. And those can be major events. As Jordan mentioned, there was quite a lot of insight about the 9-11 attacks and how they changed Americans' perception of work. There's some pretty cool research currently being conducted by colleagues of ours in Singapore that are also looking at how war and famine and COVID may have changed work orientations. And there again, this isn't published yet, but seem to be showing that these major world events do change it. Um, and then it can be much more personal serendipitous events. One path we often find is people start volunteering and that's one way they get exposure to this cause that they've cared about for a long time and then end up pursuing work in that. So that can be one. We also think, and this is very much speculation because there just aren't any longitudinal studies, but does it have to do with where you are in terms of your family life? So does work become less important to you when you have kids? That would explain why callings are so high for people who are younger. Um, and then get high again in middle age as kids get a little older. Maybe you become an empty nester. You have more time to focus back on work. Again, I'm speculating here because we just don't have anyone who's ever done a study over multiple decades. But yeah. 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 We just have kind of bits and pieces empirically that, that can suggest some of these things. But lots of ideas that, that need testing mm -hmm. um, for sure and, and, and confirming out there. But I'm wondering... Um... I think none of you mentioned the starting point. So so the events change our orientations, but then how do we enter the workforce? So I, back in the days, I never shared with you, but back in the days I had a project uh, supporting students in choosing their uh, university. So to decide earlier on about what they want to do in their lives. And um, the we, we conducted some research and the results were devastating that even as many as 200,000 students every year 
are dissatisfied with the um, faculty they finished in Poland. So they, they spent some three, five years in, uh, in uh, university to figure out that's not something they are planning to do. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so, so how about those people that are very lost in, in all those possibilities? Like, are they usually oriented in one way or another? Like, are there some that are more into calling and some more into um, job? Or what were your... Um, thoughts or, or findings on this part? Yeah, I think, so this is a question that's maybe been studied a little bit less. We do have some colleagues, Brian Deke and, and Ryan Duffy, who are vocational psychologists, and they focus a lot on, on college students, which is the, the population you're talking about. And so there, there is a lot of work on how that, that group comes to, to feel like they're living a calling or, or search for a calling. I mean, one thing that I think we could safely say is that your family and those who are close to you and the way they think about work is certainly going to impact the starting point that you have when you become kind of a young adult. Um, and that's that's certainly the case for, you know, in, in my life personally, I have, I actually have an interesting case. You know, I, I have my dad who wishes that he had a calling orientation towards his, his work, but it just didn't pan out. And so he's kind of been dissatisfied with his, his occupation for a while. And then my mom who's a, a music teacher and, and she's very passionate and, you know, kind of stereotypically calling oriented. And so I actually grew up with this huge kind of contrast between the two. It was obvious to me, at least in, in this particular circumstance that, my mom's view was a preferable experience of, of the workplace, right? And so that that kind of fed into to my starting point in terms of, oh, well, I want something that's definitely more calling oriented. That's that's kind of where I'm at. Um, so I, I think that's one obvious starting point. I don't, I don't know if others come to mind for you, Kira. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say again, there, the studies that we reviewed that dealt with college student populations the the dissatisfaction with the major came through in some of those. So if it helps you, that doesn't seem to be an uncommon experience. I, I guess zooming out for a second, two broad trends that I would point to is one is directly from our research. On average, we found evidence that both the calling orientation and the career orientation go up over time. We found almost no evidence of it going down for people. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist because, again, we can only review the research that's been done so far. The only exceptions we found were in extreme crises. So refugees who have had to leave behind you know, a promising career and they're now starting over and have very few opportunities. So, so it can happen in those kinds of challenging life circumstances. But for the most part, graduating from university is really just the start. And over a lifetime, we tend to see people traverse up or job or on job or calling. That's the first thing I would say. The second, and this isn't directly from our research, but you know, careers are a lot more flexible and fluid now in developed nations. And on the one hand, that can be kind of scary as you're at the beginning of your career. But on the other hand, I don't think these students are locking themselves into a particular work orientation regardless of whether or not they were happy with what they graduated with. Um, those would be my two big positive takeaways from the empirical record. 
And if anything, again, here I'm speculating, which you always want to be weary about as an academic, but that could be one of the reasons why it's nice to have both a calling and a career orientation, because when you have a career orientation, you look out for those opportunities for yourself, right? You might pivot, hey, I didn't like my major, but there's this opportunity here. Yeah. You know, one, one interesting idea, and, and there isn't there's specific research on this, but we, you know, if we keep making this comparison with personality, there's some recent research on personality that shows that when people move up into leadership positions, it makes them more conscientious. So conscientiousness is a trait that Kira mentioned just a few minutes ago. And so, you know, we, we would speculate, you know, if we're trying to generate ideas, which is maybe one of the primary purposes of our article, you can start to think, okay, well, would that make people more career oriented to, to give them a leadership position? Or maybe they have the experience at work, which suddenly highlighted the meaning of, of an aspect of their work, would that, you know, move them in terms of their calling orientation, that sort of thing? And we, we don't know, but these perhaps are hypotheses that we could, that we could pose. Yeah. One other thing we haven't touched on at all yet that does come from our paper is, as I've mentioned, we are arguing based on the evidence that people tend to move up on their career and calling. We also identified four common drivers of that, if you will, things that, that push you up. Um, and those were, Number one, strong emotional experience, right? So having these salient emotions about something. Um, a second one was the experience of hardship. So that not not that we're encouraging students to go out there and you know have a really tough time. <laughs> Seek out hardship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't don't become a martyr, but that it'll find life, you. You don't yeah, have to find it'll it. It'll find you. And that when life gets tough, that was that seems to get people to reevaluate what truly matters and, and what you want. Um, a third one was relationships. So we've tended to think of people who view work as a calling as kind of these lone rangers. No one else understands how important this is to me. I kind of have to do it on our own. And we're pushing back on that a little bit, that actually having this sense of camaraderie and community um, and having other people who can support you either emotionally or frankly, financially, right? If your parents are there to support you, that that can drive you to, to be able to pursue more of a calling, that it's no man is an island, if you will, that you don't do this on your own. And now shoot, what was the fourth one, Jordan? Or I can just drop the fourth one at this oh, point. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> but so, so what have we mentioned so far? We got emotions, emotions we got hardships. We got relationships and Oh, and learning. I'm so sorry. The, oh, that yes, one's really important. So we found that as people learn more, and that is either as they get more formal education or through training or self-awareness programs at work, that also seems to get people to really think more about why am I doing all this and often increase their calling. And I, yeah. I guess the learning one, there's another optimistic note on yours, just going to university regardless of whether or not they like their major. I mean, that experience of learning can drive a higher calling. Sorry, Jordan, I cut you off. Right. Well, I was just going to connect it as well to this, uh, you know, taking on a leadership position. We know that that's a hard developmental learning uh, experience, right? So I, I think that that aligns with some of the things we've, we've mentioned already. Yeah. And, and in a sense, I see also those drivers as um, something we can search for, we can um, organize in um, by ourselves, like maybe not the hardships. <laughs> Let's li <laughs> leave it to life. But especially, I'm thinking about learning about relationships. So, 
Um, we don't have to wait for uh, proper people to be around, but we can just find ourselves in a in the right community or build one if there is non um, non existent one to have some people that understand our calling and and feel our everyday struggle to uh, to pursue that. So I think that's also very insightful for um, people that feel ready to jump more into this calling train because you mentioned that it increases over our career and since our uh, audience is um, many of them are already in the middle of their careers they might be also interested in thinking what's next what's ahead so uh, i see those drivers as a um, as indicators of what to search for yeah and there is you know i might add one more thing to that is there's this interesting research that's been ongoing about, uh, usually it's described in terms of passion, which we would normally associate with calling, and, and whether passion comes as a result of, of, of working in, a, in an area or precedes it. And, you know, a lot of us kind of naively have thought, well, it precedes it. You know, you have your, your interests or traits that you're kind of born with or develop when you're a kid, and then... You need to find something that fits that 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 passion that you have, and actually, a lot of the research has suggested it's really the other way, you know. And so, if we're talking about increasing calling or career orientation, these experiences that you could have, some of those you'll you'll find your passion by doing the work first, right? And and, and so, I think that's an important kind of sub uh, subtopic, if you will, that that's embedded in this this idea of changing work orientations. I mean, it's all kind of about putting yourself out there, right? And going back to the career orientation, we've long known that putting yourself out there, building your community, having these experiences is really beneficial for your career because either you learn from other people or they might have other opportunities for you, right? So we've accepted for a long time that if you want to be successful in your career, seek out experiences, build your community. We've, we've, kind of ignored that for the calling. We've always treated the calling as you can do it yourself. It's deeply personal. And I think another reason that we might see that high calling and high career can be really nice if that is where you are in the point in your in your tenure is that you get that push to build the community and to put yourself out there rather than trying to isolate yourself. One very specific question came to my mind because <laughs> When I'm thinking about calling and career and job, it's usually, especially about calling and and also because of the references you mentioned that a lot of research is done in um, voluntary work, in nonprofits. But I wonder, um, can a salesperson have a calling for their job? Like, how did you find out about, you know, about those those kind of um, professions that are very... um, not, not that calling oriented, maybe. I'm not sure. I want to seem a little bit more extrinsically motivated. Yeah. yeah. That's a great question. I, I mean, I, my response, and I think this would be Kira's response as well, is that anybody can have a calling towards their work, generally speaking, as long as you can conceive of a value that it's providing to society. I, I think that there's room to, to, to feel a sense of calling. And, and I've had, you know, I've had samples of people that I've looked at that aren't nurses, right? They're from all sorts of different jobs. And these people still, you know, a lot of them will still report a sense of calling, certainly not all of them. And 
And so I think this is a broadly applicable concept. It might look a little different for a salesman than it does for somebody in a nonprofit, you know, caretaker role. But that doesn't mean that it's not calling. Yeah. So my short answer would be yes. Um, you can have any work orientation in any job. You're more likely to find callings among nurses or teachers or aides. You're more likely to find low calling, high career potentially in you know sales positions. Um, that doesn't mean that you won't find every work orientation in every job. Jane Dutton at the University of Michigan has done work on janitors, showing that you know you can view janitorial work as just a job. This is a paycheck, and then I get to go home, or you can view it as a calling because you're a janitor in a in a hospital or in a school, and you're keeping that area clean so that people can learn. Right. So work orientation is a particular lens on a job. Um, I think we're also going to, over time, see how we do jobs shift, uh, see how jobs align with work orientations shift. So there's some preliminary evidence that younger people may care more about a calling because we don't have longitudinal research. We don't know if it's these particular generations, so it's if it's Generation Z, or if it's always young people. But assuming that there are generational trends, there's going to be more people who want a calling who are going to become salespeople, right? And so they're going to push their organization. Are we donating part of this or are we willing to sell to, right? So, so what you bring to the work may also shift those works over time. That's promising. I mean, so like the motivation behind this question was not just a you know a random insight, but I, but I actually work a lot with um, salespeople, people in finance, um and um i was i was struggling with that uh, with that particular question you know like when when we try to um have some well-being training and and telling about like your job is important and then you know you're providing fina financial aid on on one way or another helping people make them their dreams come true but then very few believe that you know like it sounds like when when it's coming from from top down it sounds like you know we want to convince you to sell even more but but that wasn't necessarily the case so yeah so yeah. i think like it's very promising yeah. that it it might be switching over time with uh with new workforce uh, entering the market well, and, and i would say as well we have um we have a bias toward thinking that intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation are also exclusive to one another. So this is a similar insight to what we had with work orientation. There's actually some, re some recent research that looks at that bias in our, in our field and, and finds that it's not really true. You can have both at the same time. And so I think perhaps what we might notice more often with salesmen is the presence of extrinsic motivation, but that doesn't imply the absence of intrinsic motivation. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, you may know this research better than me, but extrinsic motivation is particularly beneficial for intrinsic motivation when it underscores it. Hey, we're really proud of how much you're selling here or how great your record is because what you're doing is helping, right? Because yeah. because it's making power. I mean, your point, Roddick, is it, it has to be authentic, right? So an organization can't claim that 
it being a salesman matters and you're making the world a better place if really what you're doing is, you know, destroying people's livelihoods because I'm, I'm going to an extreme here, right? So it, it, yeah. it has to be true. There's a concept called psychological contracts, which is what do you expect from a specific organization? And one side way that you can frame a psychological contract is called an ideological contract. I'm working here because I believe in the mission of the organization. I expect them to also actually believe in that. So in the U.S., we have certain organizations who, who particularly stand for values, right? REI or Patagonia about the environment. Um, there's also religious, Chick-fil-A, if you care about Christian values. And so you could see someone with a sense of calling wanting to be a salesman in those organizations. But if it's a salesman on Wall Street and you don't believe in it, then th all the top-down messaging isn't going to work. Right. Yeah. And our and our co-author, Jeff Thompson, we'll, get, we'll give Jeff right. a shout out here. Shoot. I mean, is one of the, the pioneering scholars to, right. to look at this idea of ideological contracts. And, you know, him and, and, and his co-authors looked at zookeepers, um, him and, and Stuart Bunderson is, is, is his co-author. They looked at zookeepers and zoos are, are organizations where the management of the zoo is often kind of at odds with the actual zookeepers in terms of, you know, what's best for the animals. And, and so the zookeepers were often quite skeptical or cynical about management there. And so despite having a calling orientation, um, they were they were pretty aware of the the kind of manipulative power that the, the managers could have over over them. So that's not something that, that, that goes past people. You haven't asked us for a lot of practical advice, but you mentioned that the listenership of this podcast is mainly ma managers. I think one thing <laughs> that we want to point out to them, and the research is very clear on this, is that if you are hiring people who have a higher sense of calling, they also have higher expectations. That can be fantastic for you because they're willing to go above and beyond. They're passionate. They work hard. Or it can be a real nightmare for you if you thought that, well, we can bring them in and we can pay them less and they'll just do all this work because they're passionate. That is a recipe for disaster. Um, and in our animal shelter study, we find that not only will they quit, they will continue for years to tell everyone they know, never go to that organization, right? So it, it, it's a high reward, high risk proposition for a manager. And you want to take that very seriously, that if you want to leverage that passion, you have to do it in the right way. Yeah, that's really well put. It's it's a very positive lever that you can pull, but you better pull it with the right support. Otherwise, it's it's something that can really backfire. Thank you. And actually, I wasn't asking because I have already six pages of notes <laughs> of practical insights. <laughs> But just let me wrap uh, it up a little bit and maybe give you um, a little bit more time for just one more insight from uh, generally about work orientations. But um, I wanted to highlight the, that we started with this um, two dimensions of calling job and career as the other one. I think this is already something I will take a lot of time to process and think how much it impacts a lot of and influences a lot of um, different aspects of work orientation and that you can have high calling, high career, low calling, high career and so forth. Like there are so many um, different possibilities and in a sense, they're all fine that we also discussed um, later. Then we have um, those four drivers, experience, hardship, relationship and learning as the drivers for changing calling and also that the calling increases in um, calling and career incre increase over our lifetime in majority of 
um, of cases. We talked uh, about those events that impacted, especially. And um, yeah, that's probably way more, but just my notes are a bit too chaotic right now. So I wonder like, if you can give us even more in those last seconds of the episode, what would it be? <laughs> Jordan, maybe starting from you. Yeah, well, I think in the spirit of, of Kira's last comment, I think this does have fundamental practical value. And I guess this comes back to my first comment as well. It is fundamentally practical to understand why you're doing work, right? That, that shapes how you're going to respond to incentives at work. How are you going to respond to, to challenging experiences? And if you're a manager, you want to know how your, your people, how your subordinates are, are viewing the role of work in their lives, because that tells you how to best facilitate their, their job performance. Right? And so I think this is fundamentally key to workplace relationships and fundamentally key to good management. You've, you've already gotten a lot of takeaways. I suppose one broader comment I'll make, and I don't know how many academics you interview on this podcast, but people often don't really know what we do or how we come up with these ideas. So I think it's very helpful to stress that everything we're sharing here is evidence-based. Our field, the field of management, has kind of built upon or mirrored the field of medicine in that we have questions we want to answer, we collect data, and we find these insights. And the reason I point all this out is that there are tools out there that we used to study, but that you could use with your employees. You know, there are measures of work orientation that are readily available. So if you're doing an annual engagement survey, you could put in a Resnuski and colleagues 1997 18-item or 18 question survey, and you can find out or share with people what their work orientation is. And so I think for managers, it's helpful to hear about these ideas, I hope, um, but they can translate those into more practical application in their organization, including by using these tools to find out, well, where do my employees fall? We speculated about salespeople, but if you are running an office of salespeople, you could give them these surveys and they can find out. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that. That that's generous. It's, it, I didn't talk about it much on the podcast earlier on. That actually there are many tools designed by scientists that dedicate tremendous amount of time to design those questionnaires. That they are also psychometrically sound, and that they're available. And um, yeah, it's beautiful to hear from uh, from scientists that you are fine with using your work in practice. That's uh, <laughs> I think that's a we great want to. Gift. Please. Otherwise, we're oh, just talking oh, to each no. other. <laughs> yeah. And lots of these things are published in journals. And it's, you know, it's really easy for us to access journals because our institutions pay for the access. And it's not, we don't do a great job sometimes of making those publicly available to other people, even though we want them to use it. And so it's sometimes not as easy as we want it to be, but um, they're out there. Yeah. And it's worth searching. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll end on this. I think Jordan and I have both stressed I view this as my calling and my goal is to get this information out there and help people with it. And I think a lot of scientists feel that way. So we really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and share all these insights. Yeah. A amen. <laughs> yeah. And with this, thank you very much for coming here and sharing your insights. And uh, I think we will leave the audience with this 
question we started with, why do you work? Thank you for sharing your insights to help process this question properly. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science of Business podcast. Follow Value Ships on LinkedIn and Facebook to be up to date with future episodes and live streams from the recording.